Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. We're also streaming live at WCEV1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. We're on every night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, coming to you from the wonderful city of Chicago. I don't even need to say Illinois because you already know it's only one Chicago that really counts, right? Chicago. Anyway, you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That is at Radio Islam USA. And wherever you get your podcasts, don't keep yourself in the dark. Check out those episodes that you have missed out on wherever you get your podcasts. So if that's iTunes, TuneIn, uh, Google Play, SoundCloud, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And also, we can't forget RadioIslam.com. Now, if you go there, you're going to be able to see behind the scenes uh, uh, information. You'll, you'll be able to see guest bios and pictures and a lot of things that you're not going to see anywhere else but RadioIslam.com. And last but not least, right, we've already told you, you can tweet, you can hit us on our Facebook page. But if you just want to give us a call, you can do so at 312-750-1178. That is 312-750-1178. All right, family, we're going to get into our program because uh, we say it all the time. This hour goes by really quickly, and we're like just about 10 minutes into it already. So I'm really pleased. I'm really pleased uh, to welcome uh, to the studio with us this evening Satish Shakar, and he is a British uh, based author, journalist. Well, I shouldn't say based because he's here, right? But he is a, uh, a British author, journalist, consultant in forensic evidence, and also the founder of the Fitted In Project, which is a not-for-profit organization that conducts projects on justice issues that have not had the attention that they deserve. Uh, uh, Shakar also specializes uh, since the 90s in the investigation of miscarriages of justice. His work has been published in newspapers, including The Guardian, the Independent and Private Eye, and he has worked. Uh, he's also worked for television documentaries, uh, including um, Panorama and Trial and Error. And there's a lot more, but you know what? We're going to let that uh, unveil itself throughout the conversation. So we thank you for being here with us, uh, uh, Satish. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Yes. So um, first off, as a consultant, right, because I, I just jumped immediately when I, I was just reading uh, about you going from author, journalist, and then consultant in forensic evidence, right? This is, we automatically, th we, we think about uh, with, with no, no insult intended, but we think about the lab geek, right? We think about the guys in the, in, in the white coats and the microscopes, and uh, we think about forensic files and CSI, all of these different procedurals uh, that show uh, the, that they portray forensics. But you went from journalism <laughs> to forensics, right? So, do you have a do you have a science? How how did you end up in in forensics as a forensics uh, consultant? Well, it's more a case of I understand some of the uh, issues of forensic science because you kind of had to. Okay. There was a case I was dealing with the first one I ever did, which is uh, the Lynette White inquiry. It's kind of known as the Cardiff Three or Cardiff Five. Long, long, long story short, it was the nastiest murder of its type in Welsh history at that time. Mm. It involved over 50 stab wounds. The victim was horribly attacked. It is an absolutely appalling crime. Mm. And the police were looking for one white person. There was a lot of scientific evidence, i.e. there was semen, saliva, footprints, blood. You name it, it was there. But none of it matched any of the five men who were subsequently charged. Mm. And all five men were not white either. I mean, in American terms, you'd say at least two or maybe three of them weren't black either, but they absolutely were not white. Okay. And the evidence was telling you one thing. The crime scene was absolutely screaming at you this is only consistent with one man acting on his own. 
there never was any evidence scientifically that suggested five men were involved. It was an absolute travesty, and you could see it from a very, very early stage. Mm. I looked at it, and I could see immediately these people didn't do it, but not just that they didn't do it, but that it was actually going to be possible to find the real perpetrator. Mm. But that took a long time to come, and it was like this was always my plan because like the whole idea of looking at this particular case was I saw very early this is the one and only in Britain. And right. the reason I say that is not disputing any other miscarriage of justice or saying that it's more important. It isn't. It's the facts of the case that al allowed you to to develop a hypothesis of the whole case and also how you were going to solve it and what not just solving it, but what solving it was going to mean. Mm -hmm. So the end result of this was I have this kind of memory which was, uh, you know, they didn't know what to do with it because uh, they'd never seen anybody who could just sort of come in, understand legal things, understand scientific things, and not take notes. They were just like, mm. they, were, they were looking at this thing, and, you know, they were thinking it's perfectly okay. What they didn't know is I had this memory that was going to remember it. Right. And uh, the end result of it was that having looked at all of this, I was able to uh, go into greater detail, and we found some important evidence. And... At the time of the appeal, it emerged that they had a prime suspect and they had eliminated this prime suspect on DNA. At that stage, DNA testing was or profiling was nowhere near capable of doing what it could do now. Let me ask. Let me ask. Sure. How did how how was how did they come up with five suspects? <laughs> It made no sense at all, and and this is the thing you cannot understand, mm -hmm. because uh, the evidence was never consistent with that. And I was coming to this point that mm -hmm. uh, they actually were investigating just before they uh, turned track onto uh, what the, the which led to the final people who would stand trial. Okay. They were investigating one man, and this man was a, a white paedophile. He could be linked to some of the key witnesses, had a proven gripe against women and uh, uh, sex workers in particular, and he had had injuries inflicted on him three years earlier by a woman, which was strikingly similar, the facial ones, to those that were subsequently inflicted on Lynette. Now, I'm telling you this, right. uh, but also making it absolutely clear that this man did not murder Lynette White. However, he was the prime suspect, absolutely clearly was the prime suspect. Mm. He was then eliminated on the basis of uh, DNA and later, to some extent, fingerprints, and he was correctly eliminated. Okay. At this point, and I mean literally overnight, they changed tack, and they got a witness to say that she had seen some people milling around the uh, flat where the murder happened. She then subsequently names a few others. They go back to the witnesses they had been pressurizing previously, and eventually they get the story that they want. Then they find, by a strange quirk, that one of these witnesses has the same rare blood group that they've been looking for. This is described by the forensic scientist as one hell of a coincidence. <laughs> if you take out the one hell of, you're right. Yeah. It was nothing more than a coincidence. Right. And it is a tragedy that it happened because this put the whole thing on a completely out of whack and they got it completely and utterly wrong. They came up with an absolutely ludicrous explanation as to how this uh, rare blood with the male chromosome had turned up in the flat. And it's absolute nonsense. And you can see it very, very quickly. I mean, you didn't need a scientific ed education to actually understand right. this was complete nonsense. And what they were actually saying is, one of these five men punched this woman in the face. Her, uh, uh, and it caused her mouth to bleed. But on the inside of her mouth, somehow a drop, some blood uh, came out of her mouth and landed slap bang on the uh, this man's cut hand, mm -hmm. and then it dripped down uh, to land right next to some of Lynette's blood. And this seemed logical 
Only them. if you are desperate mm. to explain, you know, to try to form a scientific link against some of these men. It doesn't add up. Right. It isn't, you know, it's just not credible. Like, there's no way this was going to happen, and it doesn't explain any of the other traces of foreign blood. By foreign, I mean blood which was not shed by the victim. Right, right. Uh, that was uh, found in the flat. They already knew there were other samples which were foreign. Mm. Now, this becomes very, very important later because you actually have the murderer's blood. Mm. Right? You haven't, it's not able to tell you its story yet, but you have it. Right. What you also have is a means of working out that even if you didn't have and know you had the murderer's blood, you could actually work out this murderer was going to have cut himself. And not just that he was going to have cut himself, but where to look in the flat. Because there was going to be a large amount of blood. There were several stab wounds. Mm -hmm. So you knew you were going to find blood all over the place, and the vast majority of it was going to be that of the victim. What you had to work out is how do you manage to find some blood which was shed by the perpetrator and there are methods to do it and these methods were known in 1988 when this murder happened so certainly I can in 1989 see, I, I can see how this would definitely present itself as a miscarriage of justice mm -hmm. uh, and and needing somebody with the uh, with the, the skill and the observation and the ability to come in and uh, reconstruct or deconstruct either the arguments that were, that were being made uh, in favor of what sounds to be a laughable uh, prosecution or a laughable hypothesis. Mm. Um, but this being not necessarily a case that maybe not a whole lot of Americans may, may or may not be familiar with, mm. um, just dealing with that premise of being able to recognize these uh, miscarriages of justice, recognize where something is just going off the rails. How do you, how do you become aware of these issues, and how and how do you, uh, how, how are you inserted into them? I, I mean, to some extent, they found me. Oh, there really? are a few of these cases that, you know, I knew about because I knew various people, and people get in touch with me, and they basically sort of start talking about it, right. and. Some of them get in touch with me because I'm about the only one outside of the sort of scientific community who knows about this and how to deal with these things. Yeah. So, But I, that didn't happen overnight. It took a long time for me to develop the understanding that I needed. What was that process like? Well, that process was after the appeal succeeded, which is in 1992, mm -hmm. it stopped because we didn't have any means of finding the real perpetrator. I was looking at this and saying, well, hang on a minute. You now know who this suspect is and that uh, the DNA is going to be the uh, important part of it. The man was eliminated by DNA. Nobody at that stage had ever successfully challenged a DNA elimination before. So wow. th this was like, uh, but the interesting thing about it is the police themselves had given the indication of how to challenge it really in their own case well okay. they were basically what in sorry let me explain this in december of 1988 they arrested and charged these five men mm -hmm. they almost certainly expected the dna to come back and say it was them but it didn't right it came back and said it's not them so now they are in this really difficult position because uh, if they had waited until they had the DNA evidence, they would never have arrested these people. They would have actually moved on and tried to solve it, and they actually wouldn't have been able to solve it, but not because it's their fault. You actually could not have solved it in 1988 and 1989. It was impossible, and I'll explain that as to why it's impossible later. But mm -hmm. the key point with all of this was they now are desperate to attack the DNA elimination of Cardiff Five. Uh, because it's a huge embarrassment. The last thing they want is to say, actually, DNA says we've got this completely and utterly wrong. Right. So what they do is ask and try to find ways to, to uh, discredit it. What they find is that uh, some of the bands in the DNA profile may have degraded 
and others were treated with a fingerprinting chemical which may have affected the DNA under test. Hmm. As it turns out, they were right. This that does actually happen. But their problem is, uh, and they're sort of saying, we cannot eliminate the victim, Lynette White, as the source of this DNA. Up till that point, everybody had been eliminated on blood, which they said had come from the killer. Right. Now they're saying it could be the victim's blood. But there's a big problem with this. And the problem is, if that's the victim's blood, it can't eliminate anyone. It's not just the Cardiff Five's elimination you can't rely on. It's absolutely everybody. That right. includes the prime suspect. So their whole method of uh, attacking the uh, DNA elimination of the Cardiff Five actually opens the case up again three years later because I, sort of, I discover this and say, well, hang on a minute, you can't do this. You cannot say that this is uh, okay to eliminate the Cardiff Five and nobody else. This cannot eliminate anybody. Mm. And at that stage, the, we're now in 1995, I'd also discovered uh, that uh, there had been advances in forensic science. By this time, there was a thing called the polymerase chain reaction. Mm. And PCR enables you to amplify very, very small amounts of uh, DNA into larger amounts that you can test. Right. And so you then had a system which was uh, tested. Eventually, there were a number of systems, and they come to, in, in 1998, th there is a system which is called SGM+, Plus, that's second-generation multiplex. Sorry, uh, let me correct that. It wasn't SGM+, Plus, it was SGM. It was second-generation multiplex because it only tested at six genes. And uh, they, it gives you, they, they didn't actually manage to get the DNA from this. They actually said, we, we, will in, we will devise a new protocol just for this case. And we were saying, no, you're not going to do that. Because uh, the DNA, there's a small amount of DNA, cannot take the risk of this uh, going. If you use it and we don't get useful results, and the odds are you're not going to, not because they were negligent or you know, horrible people or anything, it was because you already saw they had tried a uh, method called multiplexing, mm -hmm. which wasn't as sensitive as singleplexing in amplifying, and it had failed on every single sample. When I saw it failed first time, I was saying, well, we know how these others are treated. Every sample for this case? Yeah. Okay. Uh, every sample that uh, they, they had actually tested. Mm -hmm. We were saying, don't do this. When, it's, when the first batch failed, I was sort of saying, because I had contact with a, a forensic scientist, and he was saying, the better bet is singleplexing because it's more sensitive. So there is not a single example of multiplexing working where singleplexing has failed. But there are examples of singleplexing working where multiplexing failed. So we are saying, don't do this. Mm -hmm. Stop and go straight to singleplexing because the samples have been treated very similarly. The odds are it's not going to work. Right. They wouldn't listen. They spent 18 months getting it wrong. They, every single one they tested did not yield the result. Then they tried singleplexing, and singleplexing didn't work, and then they wanted to do all over again everything with singleplexing. And is this because, of the, is this because the uh, DNA sample had been degraded? Was That, that the, was that a big was... part of it. Okay. I mean, it, what, you know, the, the problem with this is if the DNA has degraded, it's gone off. Right. Like, so there's, only, there's a smaller portion so you're trying to amplify a much smaller amount. Sure. And if it's gone off, you cannot do it. It's not going to work. I mean, mm. you know, those parts will not amplify. You will not get the uh, DNA that, uh, you know, profile that you are looking for. It's just not going to happen. I guess it goes without saying, because we're at the point we're talking about DNA mm. and, and single-plexing and multiplexing. Yeah. And so obviously fingerprints were not, <laughs> there, were, there, was, there was no fingerprint evidence Yes, there uh, was, but they oh, didn't they have the fingerprints of the person. Oh, they I'll explain why later. Okay. But the thing about this is like this, once you knew it wasn't going to work or it was very unlikely to work with that current system yeah. that you had up to 1998, 1997, 1998, 
They wanted to continue, and we were saying, no, you don't, no, no, we don't want this continuing now. Eventually, there will be a DNA testing system that can get useful results, even from seemingly useless samples like this. Right. What I didn't know is it was going to happen six months after I said it. Oh, wow. And it did. So six months after I, uh, my first book was published, and one of the key things was you cannot do this. You cannot waste this DNA. It's precious. It must be uh, saved because there is going to be this system. It's when, not if. Mm. Six months later, it came. Now, I heard the same thing. Uh, this was quite often uh, the, the situation that investigators found themselves in uh, at, at the advent when DNA testing first uh, was introduced um, here uh, in the United States where they started taking advantage of it. Uh, and the concern was always with a limited a limited uh, sample for testing. They didn't want to test, take their one shot, and actually not uh, and not wind up with a match. So that sounds like that, that was a very similar, you were six months right before that would mm -hmm. be, uh, that problem would be resolved. Yes, it was. I mean, obviously, I didn't think it was going to be that quick, but yeah. it was. Yeah. And it, then it co corresponds with another thing which was very important, and this was there was a change in the attitude in South Wales Police. Hmm. And they actually started to look at uh, the use of uh, better investigative methods i.e. evidence-led investigative methods, okay. and also using forensic science. Okay. And it's a combination of the two. This is the problem. Like I said earlier, it's no good having this fantastic DNA testing system if you don't know how to use it, if you don't know where to look for the, for the uh, DNA that uh, you want you know, from the perpetrator. It isn't going to do you any good whatsoever. Mm -hmm. What happened in this case is that they... Uh, investigated and they looked at what went wrong in the first case and they learned some of the lessons and then they reopened it uh, and looked at trying to solve it. They actually decided that they were going to do something or try to do something no force in Britain had ever achieved and that is to resolve a miscarriage of justice by finding the real perpetrator. What happened to those five this, uh, they were already free five. by then. So they, they were freed, but it was it was just an unresolved case. Yeah. What, okay. what had happened was in 1990, mm -hmm. the longest murder trial in British history at that time ended with two of these men being acquitted and the other three going to prison. In 1992, the convictions of the other three were quashed. Okay. From that point onwards, the case was in limbo. Nobody was uh, successfully prosecuted. Nobody was in prison for it. And it was one of these cases where you looked at this and you were saying, no, we cannot allow this. You cannot have a situation where somebody is able to commit a crime of this appalling magnitude mm -hmm. and, and not pay for it at all. That society deserves better. The victim's family deserve better. The... Cardiff Five deserve better, their families deserve better. We have to solve it. And the only way that you could solve it was waiting for the, the uh, forensic science to catch up. When it did, you knew how to do it. And mm. this is part of the thing. I knew it was going to be something to do with DNA that was going to solve this. I knew it before they had the testing system by a long way. I knew, but you could see there were going, there were advances in DNA testing. It was getting better and better. It was a question of when it reached the level that it needed to reach. Right. And it did that in 1999, 98-99. They then reopened this case and they put the resources into it and they put some of the best polices, police officers that you could get. They did a fantastic investigation, and I'm saying that as somebody who was the number one critic of the uh, the first investigation. I mean, they never thought that you would get a situation where I would actually say what I'm saying now, which is they did a fantastic job. So and were they you don't writing? deserve to be were you, were you, tarred with the brush that uh, they have been to some extent. So were you writing uh, and, and talking about just the the, the lack of progress and... Uh, it sounds like there was some bumbling that might have been going on. Mm -hmm. uh, were you were you writing? Were you doing some critical writing uh, as far as as a journalist 
with yeah. regard to that during that time? Yes. I mean, I was, at, to some extent, I was fighting an almost lone battle mm. to force them to do something about it. Originally, when the case was reopened for the first time, the dead girl's mother played a vitally important part in this, in that I knew they were going to say that I did not have a legal interest in this case. But I knew they couldn't say that to her. Mm. So when I got to talk to her, it was, I explained, you know, how they, you know, I was essentially sort of said to her, look, I cannot promise you that we're going to find the real murderer, but I think I know how to do it. Mm. And she gave me a chance to do that. I explained it and we basically forced them to reopen the case twice and go and find the real perpetrator. They, I have to say that in the phase two investigation, South Wales Police did a fantastic job because they they started with nobody having achieved this. Mm. Then they find something which nobody expected, which is that they get all this DNA, they reconstruct the uh, exit route of the murderer, and they do it 14 years after the fact. Wow. They discover that uh, paint, certain types of paint, are among the best preservatives of blood and DNA known to man. Underneath this paint which has been painted over the flat has been painted over in 1988 they find blood and they carefully scrape it away the paint and they dna test it and it matches the dna from samples you already knew had been shed by the murderer wow and this basically builds up the dna profile and it builds up a picture because it's telling you how the person gets out of the flat, where they touch, and that it is impossible for this DNA to have been planted. They also take a look at, one of the scientists takes a look at the um, crime scene photographs and he notices that one drop of blood, which would be cast off, that that is blood that is essentially thrown backwards in the course of the... uh, uh, crime. If, if you were so, uh, it's hard to explain it, but you can you say what I'm doing. Like yeah. you do it like that. If you are, if your hand is cut, your mm-hmm. blood is being thrown. So it's going in a particular pattern, right. and you therefore know where to look. It isn't going to have fallen down you know, uh, near to you. There will be some like that, but the key blood is where is the ones that's thrown back. Right. And also where you touch the wall and uh, you know, uh, where your hand touches on the way out of the flat. They were able to reconstruct this. They also noticed, as I said, one drop of blood which was cast off was likely to have dripped down the wall to where the uh, wall met the skirting board. Both the reviewing scientist and the one who t- subsequently does uh, a large part of the DNA analysis recommended cutting this piece of skirting board away, scraping it, and uh, seeing if there was blood there. Yes, there was. And this blood was that of the killer. Wow. So this couldn't possibly have been faked. It couldn't have been planted. It had to be the blood of the killer. Then you find something really strange, which is conventional wisdom tells you this type of crime is committed by somebody who builds up to you know it. What? Let me stop you right there for a sure. second. Let's stop right there for a second. We're gonna let's let's take a, a short break when we come back because I think we're about to get into the really the really juicy part uh here. <laughs> I feel a revelation coming. Uh Radio Sound family, our guest in studio is Satish Shakar. Uh he is uh, the founder of the Fitted In Project and obviously you can tell he knows a tremendous amount about forensics, uh, consulting, he's an author, journalist. But we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a moment. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So um, we don't have those Energy Star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. 
because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later, and you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah, and I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872 806-0141 that's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Uh, remember, you can find us on social media and wherever you get your podcast at Radio Islam USA. That is at Radio Islam USA. And make sure that you stop by RadioIslam.com for behind the scenes uh, info on guests and uh, topics and uh, just original content that you're not going to find anywhere else. So we are back at it uh, with Satish uh, Shakar and he was giving us the uh, some of the background on uh, one of the most high prof- profile cases uh, that happened in Britain uh, dealing with a, a young lady named Lynette White. Now I'm going to just tell you all this really quickly. Um, uh, Satish is he's here just for a brief period of time right so he's got some other uh, commitments we're happy to be able to have him uh, with this, but he's going to have to wrap up this uh, uh, just this this telling for us because I know you got uh, you got meetings and you got to run. But if you you don't don't want to leave us hanging, so you were saying that that DNA evidence led to what? Well, what happened with this is that the conventional wisdom is this type of crime is committed by somebody who built up to it, has a history of uh, even robberies, uh, little uh, sort of petty offences that lead up to more violent ones and sex offences and finally to murder. Right. What isn't supposed to happen is that there's nothing, not even a parking offence. But that is what happens in this case. Mm. The murderer hasn't committed so much as a parking offence at this point in time uh, in 1988. So they cannot find him. It's not because they are useless. It is because there is no way to actually find him at that particular point in time. What happens then is you ha- they check the National DNA Database and to their surprise, he still hasn't done anything. Mm-hmm. There's still no record of his DNA. What, what you later find out is that there was a attack on a work colleague which he got a conditional discharge over, uh, well, a conditional uh, sort of penalty. It wasn't a big one. And the end result was the only way they can actually find him is that the National DNA Database included, in this particular case, this man had a very rare allele, or or you can call it a band. Each person inherits one at each gene from each parent. So you have 20 under test. The end result of this is that uh, this one allele alone eliminates 99% of people on the National DNA database. So they realize and they play a hunch. Their hunch is the murderer is still going to be in South Wales mm-hmm. and that his family is going to have somebody who was criminally active. It had worked previously in another big, big case in Wales. So they search at either 
seven or eight alleles and at 12 and 14. The end result is that they find one match that is at 14 alleles, which is very, very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And they, they realize they have found a male relative of the killer. And this, so, uh, this is at 14. So now they go and check every uh, male member of this family mm -hmm. and they find something shocking. And the shocking thing is there's still no match. But they actually, the DNA is saying it's got to be a male member of this family. So they ask them again, is there anyone we've, we've missed? And it turns out there was an uncle. And they go and see this uncle and they ask him for his DNA. He gives it because now he knows that finally it's over. It's over. Mm. And he goes and buys a load of paracetamol and he tries to kill himself. They knock his door in and they take him to hospital. And on the way to hospital, he confesses. Then he doesn't say anything in interview and eventually confronted with the strength of the DNA evidence, he pleads guilty. It's the first time in British history that in the DNA age that a miscarriage of justice has been resolved by the conviction of the real killer. These methods can also be used all over the world. There are numerous cases where the real perpetrator has been brought to justice. In the United States, you've got well over 100 like this. Seems like there's one at least once a month. You could say that. I mean, it is, it's a case of if you know what you're looking for and how to look for it, mm -hmm. you will find it. Yeah. That's not in every single case, but there are some where this will work. And these cases are the ones that are going to change the criminal justice system. The way I look at it is... If you have a case where there is absolutely no doubt about innocence, if you're going to change things, it's going to be with one of those. Mm. Well, Satch, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to stop here on your on your trip. Um, you're going to be returning back uh, in a couple of days. Yeah, I will definitely try. I'm leaving. Uh, I'm flying back to Britain on Friday night. Okay, but, uh, all right. We'll work something out. Okay. Well, we definitely uh, are hoping that you have a safe uh, flight back. And look forward to talking to you again in the future, maybe by phone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, thank you very much. All right. So, uh, Radio Slam family, uh, that was Satish Shakar, uh, author, journalist, and consultant, forensic evidence. And we've just got the run-through, uh, very abbreviated run-through, on the uh, on a very famous case uh, there, as which he stated, it was the first time that a miscarriage of justice was uh, was rectified with DNA evidence. So. That was a, that's a bit of history, a very important history for us to, uh, to take in. So, look, we're going to take a very short break, and I do mean a short break. And when we come back, we're going to go ahead uh, and, and talk a little bit about some of the things we saw in the news today. All right, this is Rick. It's 6.42 p.m. Time for Steve Plato and his son Dylan to do the dishes. They talk about everything from the yuckiness of girls to the awesomeness of his soccer team. Sometimes they don't talk at all. Then, hey! the dreaded <laughs> splash fight. It's dad o'clock, and it's the best time of the day because the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Oh, hi. Right now, I'm getting a remarkably heartfelt bear hug from Smokey Bear. Thanks, big guy. Now, if you could let me down. <clears throat> See, I made sure there were no low-hanging branches when I set up my campfire. And before we left, I drowned out my campfire, stirred it, drowned it out again, then made sure it was cold. <clears throat> Visit SmokeyBear.com to learn tips to prevent wildfires. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires.
Hi, my name is Stanley, and I've been arrested for stealing shoes. I didn't really steal them, but I've been sent to Camp Green Lake anyway. The worst punishment a kid could get. And at Camp Green Lake, we dig holes. Lots of holes. I've only been here a short time, but I think the camp director is up to something. I'm Stanley Yelnats, and I'm covering more than dirt at Camp Green Lake. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Holes by Lewis Sacker. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. Uh, this is your host, Tariq el We're on WCV 1450 AM. You know all of that good stuff. You can find us, podcasts, social media, at Radio Islam USA. And make sure you make your way by RadioIslam.com. All right. So as we are winding down, we've got to talk about... Well, first of all, I've got to tell you this. My intent today, earlier today... Uh, was to come in today, and I said we're going to go ahead and promote. There's a, a rally. I'm not. I'm not certain about the status of the rally, so I'm not going to give um, any real details on it right now. But there was supposed to be a rally this coming Saturday, I think, or well, the 30th. There was supposed to be a rally on the 30th, so not this Saturday. Um, but the idea was it, it was to protest these children that have been taken away from their parents. We talked about this a bit on yesterday's program. And lo and behold, we find ourselves uh, recipients of an executive order today where President Trump has buckled, uh, he has buckled to the criticism of folks from his own party and some of the criticism that came from his own base with regard to the sight of, right, the sight of these children being taken away from their, their parents, uh, from the sight of uh, grieving mothers. And I'm emphasizing sight for a particular reason. I'm emphasizing because that's also, it's the same language that the president used himself with uh, in, in explaining why he signed uh, this executive order which is something that he could have done immediately. You know, We didn't have to be in this position that we're in right now. Uh, this was all due to the enforcement, this, this zero tolerance uh, enforcement, um, prosecuting people for misdemeanors, for unlawful entry uh, in, into the country. Now, his words were, I didn't like the sight of families being separated. Now, I'm going to take issue with this, and the reason I'm going to take issue with this is because this language to me, it says a lot. I didn't like the site. Not that I didn't, that I had really, I really had any issues with doing this to achieve a political end, but I just didn't like to see it, right? I want to eat sausage. I just don't want to see it being made. That's that's how I that's how I took this. I didn't I didn't take this to to mean that the president was sincere in his concern for these children um, or their families for their parents. I didn't take this as somehow being uh, indicating that there was any type of empathy that existed existed for people who would leave their homeland and travel hundreds or thousands uh, of miles with the clothes on their backs looking for a better, looking for safety. Primarily, first and foremost, look, looking for safety. So I didn't, I didn't garner any of that from his statement. His statement was, I just didn't want to see it. I don't mind taking children from their parents. I don't mind imprisoning people, detaining people that are seeking asylum. Uh, I don't mind any of that. I just don't want people to see it, and I don't want to see it. So there's no, there's no sincerity. There's no, real, there's no real empathy. He was uh, fine to 
uh, continue to allow this minus the uproar, minus the backlash that he got from Republicans, minus the backlash that he got from evangelicals. Uh, he was fine to allow this to play out until he got what he wanted from the, the Congress, and that is funding for a border wall. So once again, we just go back, we realize that we're not dealing with a moral, uh, a person who's making moral decisions. He's making political decisions, uh, and it's, it's just quite, quite obvious. I also have to add on this. There's quite often a statement, a uh, statement is made that they're coming here unlawfully or they're coming here illegally. Talking about those people who are crossing the border, those who are seeking asylum, that they should go through the legal, through the proper channels. Now, if you have ever been in a fire, if you've ever been in a, in a building that was ablaze, where the smoke was creeping its way down the hallways, where you had to drop down to your belly and, and try to make your way out. If you've ever been in that type of situation, uh, which I can personally attest, yes, I, I have been in those situations, then I want you to think about where these people are coming from and think about it as if they are escaping a fire, as if they are escaping a burning building a home that is about to collapse in on them and kill them and their families. And if they were to stay in that situation, if they were to stay in that home, stay in that structure, it would be to sentence not only themselves, but to sentence their children to death. So I ask you, is there a legal way to escape a burning building? No, you just get out. You simply get up and you find the nearest and closest exit and you get out. And because we're not looking at these border crossings, the majority of them, we're not looking at them in that light. Some people are being taken in by this nonsense, by this sham of a, of a justification of detaining people uh, to say that we are trying to combat human trafficking. Now, we do know that there have been arrests made where uh, human traffickers have been caught. And we do know that human trafficking is a very real blight that we are dealing with globally. And that is something that we want to allocate resources toward. But the resources that we are now allocating at our border are to prosecute not felonies, not the felony of human trafficking, but we are allocating our resources, our limited resources at our borders with regard to our immigration courts, uh, our prosecutors. We are allocating those resources to prosecute the misdemeanor of unlawful entry. And that in itself, it, it says that we are missing, we're missing the big picture. We're missing the important point. And we actually diminish our border security we actually diminish our ability to catch the big fish to impact the real crime that is going on because we have a president who is really who is who is happy to to detain children to separate children from their families and now with his executive order he is now uh, he is he is now allowing those children those families to stay, stay together as they are detained so it's it's still it still sucks yes it, i mean it's still horrible because uh, but at the very least we can say that at least the families are are still together and this is something else i i, I must say this there have always been good people that have had the unfortunate task and and maybe fortunate to there there have always been good people who have had to work in harmful systems. And by that, I hope it's, it's pretty clear uh, that we have people who are actually dedicated to the job of keeping our borders safe and 
uh, and stopping those people who who mean to do uh, our citizens harm or who mean to uh, in, they're, they're up to no good. Right. They, they are they are there to catch the bad actors. And we support we support their efforts. We support them. But we also know that the scope of their operations, uh, it's not something that is defined by them. Those parameters are established by uh, a bureaucracy, uh, which at its head has an individual, once again, I say, who does not have empathy, who does not have a moral compass, and who simply plays to the loudest applause. And when the applause goes away, he may pivot, he may change a little bit, but at his core, his core has not changed. He believes that everything is a negotiation, and he believes that everything is fair game in that negotiation. But the people, the people that are on the front lines that are working, those people are more important now than ever to bring some humanity and dignity to a job uh, and to the circumstances that these people who are looking for uh, help, who are seeking as asylum, seeking assistance, seeking what this country is supposed to historically has said it represents as, as a beacon of light, as, as an accepting, uh, as accepting and open arms for the world's uh, tired and poor and huddled masses. These people that are on the front lines, our, our, our border uh, patrol, uh, our, our, uh, even our, our ICE, even our um, Immigration Customs Enforcement, all of these people, right, these, these people that are working on the front lines dealing with these uh, individuals, these men and women, these, these boys and girls, these, these children, these families, these are people, your, your countenance, your behavior, the spirit that you approach your job with, the, uh, the, the humanity that you recognize in the people that you are dealing with is going to be more important now than ever. You may not be able to dictate policy. You may not have that ability. But you have the ability to demonstrate a personality and demonstrate a spirit, uh, to demonstrate that we are better than our mistakes. You have that ability more so than anybody. So I, I, I hope that those who are serving in those capacities, that they make what many of us look to, to, to think, uh, uh, we look at as an unbearable uh, situation, that you bring some, some ray of hope to it, that you bring some dignity uh, to, these, uh, to these people so they recognize that they are people, that they are not hated. And, um, and your, job, uh, your, job, your job will be done. So uh, that being said, folks, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up and get on out of here. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in every night. We'll be back with you tomorrow evening, uh, God willing, inshallah. We want to thank our engineer over at WCEV. Leonard, thank you very much, sir. And we thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Baig. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alamingan. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. All right, family, we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.